Hello, everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. I am your host, Paul Connor, and I'm joined this episode by a... What do you call yourself, Jesse? Journalist, science writer, thought a leader. A monster. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought, yeah, thought leader. Credible shit poster. Uh, <laughs> expert, uh, credible shit poster, model, actor. Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Journalist, Jesse Single. Um, very excited to have you on. Um, obviously, okay, so the main thing, Jesse, that I want to talk to you about is how my delightful Philadelphia 76ers are currently in first place in the Eastern Conference while your nasty, brutish Boston this was Celtics a trap. <laughs> are languishing. You me here under book promotion purposes to humiliate my basketball team. <laughs> languishing in fourth place. But before we get to that, uh, you've written a book, apparently, uh, called The Quick Fix, uh, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Now, I have read nearly all of this book, nearly read it cover to cover. I didn't quite get time. I've kind of skipped over the grit chapter, but I've read most of it. I think it's very, very good. Uh, so we're going to discuss that largely today. But I also wanted to just ask you, first of all, because I'm actually kind of curious about this. I listen to your podcast. You know, I read a lot of your writing and uh, every so often you sort of hint at your background um, your training sort of in social science um, because you you yourself are not a social psychologist but you know quite a lot about uh, us and our field and what we do so uh, you have quite an interesting perspective in that sense so yeah what what is your background like what is your training why why do you think you are qualified to talk about our highly sophisticated scientific field yeah, I mean, so so the short answer is I have some basic quantitative training from a uh, public policy degree I got back, uh, God, 2013, which is suddenly a long time ago. Um, and then I worked for a few years at New York Magazine, where I mostly wrote about behavioral science and edited stories about behavioral science. So I've been lucky, like between this master's program and my work at New York Magazine, I've had the opportunity to get a lot, uh, get to know a lot of behavioral scientists who write about a lot of controversies. And, uh, yeah, I, I would never claim to be a stats expert or a methods expert, but I know enough and I know the right questions to ask of genuine experts, uh, to hopefully write about these issues, uh, lucidly. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, you, you definitely, um, know a lot more about this stuff than most, um, journalists would or most um than most sixers fans for sure <laughs> okay well i'm editing that out for sure so um you so um was the plan to be a researcher so when you did the public policy degree did you always know that you wanted to go into journalism or did you actually have um ambitions of doing research at one point or even going into politics this was another very uh, lucky situation. I, w I was at the Boston Globe on the opinion page as sort of like a permalancer. Um, I think I, I think it was like five hundred dollars a week. Plus, I would get paid extra for these um, unsigned editorials and columns. It was a great job. I learned a lot. But I realized I was tired of just doing like takey opinion writing. Like, here's why gay marriage is good and stuff like that. I, I got more interested in why people believe what they do. Um, that led me to thinkers like John Haidt and to a general interest in, in some social psychology. And I realized like I could just use some more training to actually be able to write more in-depth, complicated pieces. And I very luckily 
in part because I was a journalist and I wasn't competing with the same pool of like, you know, Capitol Hill aides and, and, and NGO folks, I was able to get into a grad program where they, they cover your two years there, uh, with a stipend the same way PhD programs, like fully funded PhD programs are covered. So other than the opportunity cost of taking some time off from journalism, and I was able to mitigate that by, um, sometimes ignoring my schoolwork to like write pieces for the Daily Beast, there was no real downside. It was like two years learning what I wanted to learn. This is a very, you know, they, they do more basic stats and uh, micro and macroeconomics um, and quantitative stuff in general than a lot of MPA programs. So it was just a no-lose situation and it really worked out perfectly. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Well, it's definitely left you in a sort of unique vantage point to be sort of outside the field of social psychology looking in. And I really think this book, yeah, well, you've produced something really valuable here. Um but Thank so you. tell tell my listeners a little bit about it. Like, what's what's the basic premise? What's what's some of the ground you cover in it, uh, and what's the underlying uh, message of the quick fix? Yeah, I mean the the book is basically about this phenomenon where Americans tend to become enamored with behavioral science concepts that I, I call half baked. That means there's some element of truth there or some element of valid research. But by the time these ideas reach, say, the TED Talk stage, which is like their most common vector, a lot of complexity has been sanded down and a lot of exaggeration has taken place. So the book is an exploration of like why these ideas have caught on so much, mostly 21st century ones, and and what it tells us about American society and particularly our individualism and our thirst for quick fixes that, you know, so many people are convinced grit can go a long way toward solving the educational inequality or the implicit association test is like a meaningful response to societal racism. So that's the, um, that would be the elevator pitch if it was a fairly long elevator ride. (laughs) Sure. So yeah, um, you cover a number of specific topics in the book. Um, and I, I think, yeah, as I was reading it, it, it almost has the feel of, um, like I'm reading one super long New Yorker expose piece on a particular research area uh, after the other, but I think you tie them um, you tie them in well with each other. So just briefly, uh, you start off talking about uh, self esteem, which I found really interesting because I grew up in the '80s when like this stuff was really like just big and everywhere, um, and. Um, yeah, I remember one time <laughs> I got caught shoplifting and my, my dad <laughs> talked to me and the whole talk was like, you know, Paul, I think I think this shows that you have low self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> my um, self-esteem was so low I shoplifted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which for me, it was like, yeah, dad, <laughs> totally. I'm the, vic- I'm the victim here. Um, but yeah, um, then, I mean, you talk a bit about this idea of the super predator, which was totally new to me. And to be honest, not not really a social psychology thing. So I was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's not our field. But to me, um, the chapter that really made me just like, I can't put this book down was about positive psychology. Um so I was I was really interested in positive psychology, you know, a long time ago when I was I was an undergrad. You know, this was around 2010, 2011, when these ideas were really uh, taking off. I even met uh, Martin Seligman at some dinner in Melbourne, 
Um, and I, you know, really looked up to him at that point and I kind of lost interest in it um, briefly after that. So I haven't really been following what was going on. So I'm going to assume a lot of uh, my listeners don't know a lot of this, but can you talk a bit about that chapter in particular in the positive psychology um, and where this stuff has gone and um, especially with the uh, the army? Because I just thought that was a, a fascinating uh, story and I'm surprised that I hadn't, I didn't know anything about it being in the field. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm, I was glad you said that that was um, the chapter that jumped out the most to you because I, I think... So for every chapter, I'm trying to do more than just debunk the idea. I'm trying to explain what cultural or institutional niche it filled, why people believed it, what it tells us about America. Most readers who are in the market for this book will probably not arrive having never heard of grit or power posing or the IAT. I think a fair number will arrive having never heard of comprehensive soldier fitness. I was shocked that there hasn't been more attention paid to this. It seems like a scandal in plain sight. Uh, one small handful of researchers have written about it. One US today, USA Today journalist did, one American studies scholar. But yeah, I'll, I can I can give the basic rundown. But um, in the late aughts, the, the US military was overstretched and was sending kids, because these are kids, on multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. They were coming back horribly traumatized from what they'd seen, you know, both from watching friends die. Oftentimes, they had done horrible things to enemy fighters or to civilians sometimes it's just war war is obviously a nightmare not that i can speak from any personal experience but um so they would come home with horrible ptsd and this would lead to uh horrible symptoms they would sometimes kill themselves less often they would kill other people there was a string of horrible murders that got attention domestic violence stuff like that so the army realized it had to do something and there was this appetite for some big new anti-PTSD expert. And through this like interesting process that I lay out pretty specifically in my book, the Army found its way to, to Marty Seligman. And he's a legendary social psychologist. Uh, I think he was best known for the concept of learned helplessness, which is when uh, organisms sort of give up, basically trying to like save themselves or improve their situation because they've been so battered by trauma and horrible events. He shifted focus later in his career toward positive psychology, and he founded the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania. His basic goal was to shift psychology away from the idea of treating people with serious problems and toward the idea of helping people who are basically healthy to flourish and achieve their maximum potential, which, you know, strikes me as a worthy goal. Cause like if, if you're pretty healthy and functional, you should still be able to do even better and get yourself from like a 60% to a 90% or whatever. Nothing wrong with that. The problem has been, as I explained in the chapter, that in my view, repeatedly, Seligman and the Positive Psychology Center have oversold the evidence for their interventions. And and this is an institution that makes its money both by training positive psychologists and by selling interventions to all sorts of uh, different institutions. And um, yeah, that this really came to the head with with comprehensive soldier fitness. So maybe I'll just give a brief rundown of what of what uh, the Penn Resilience Program was first. Or did, did, is this all making sense so no, far? No, I think that's yeah, I think that's a good idea. So, I mean, it's a it was a great idea. Like nobody is denying that Seligman had a really good idea. 
right? Like, why, why are we focusing on fixing broken people? Why aren't we focusing on improving normal people's lives? Great idea, right? Like, awesome idea. And just, like, the, the idea that maybe we can build resilience to things like depression and anxiety and things like this. Great idea. And But... I think in some ways, maybe it was <laughs> too much of a good idea that he just instantly got all this fame and money and attention um, and all the incentives just lined themselves up to, to just really oversell this idea uh, and take it mainstream without uh, doing the careful science work. So you mentioned the, um, the Penn Resilience Program. So wh- what was that? Yeah, this was this was um, created by a woman named Jill Gill- Jane Gillum. Uh, she's, I guess, herself a social psychologist who worked with Seligman. So, okay, you have this basic idea of sort of cognitive behavioral principles. That is, you know, uh, reducing one's tendency to catastrophize. Like if I, if a loved one is an hour late getting home. Uh, I, I have this kind of brain where I'll assume like they're in a car crash or on the side of the road somewhere. They're in danger. Through cognitive behavioral therapy, you learn to like identify thoughts that are likely distortions or exaggerations and replace them with something else. Um, this, my understanding of the literature is this has pretty solid evidence in one-on-one therapeutic settings with people suffering from depression or anxiety. Gillum's innovation and the positive psychology center's innovation were to say, what if instead of giving people these skills after the fact, after they're suffering from anxiety and depression, we could teach a teacher, for example, an elementary school teacher, a middle school teacher about these concepts, train the trainer, it's called. We're training this person to train her students. The theory is she can then do a series of lessons with these concepts and inoculate these kids against depression and anxiety. The Penn Resilience Program has been studied in the in the context of 10 to 14-year-old kids. So these are I guess basically what we'd call middle schoolers in the States and fifth graders. And the goal is to basically give them a cognitive behavioral mindset and some other skills that will reduce the probability they get anxiety and depression. Okay, so that's been going on since the 90s. What Seligman does is he tells the Army, I can take this program and I can apply it to soldiers. We can train the trainers. We can have these trainers fanned out throughout the army. A, a, a unit level commander can teach his soldiers how to be more resilient, how to resist depression and anxiety. And I think if you're listening to this and you have some background in psychology, um, I mean, you're, you're a professional psychologist in training. You tell me, but the, the first question you would ask, right, is, is a program designed for 10 to 14 year olds in school settings where, you know, some of them face difficulties, but the difficulties are usually on the order of like, my boyfriend broke up with me, or I have too much homework, or I'm being bullied. Can you apply a program like that cleanly to a situation where it's more, here's a 20-year-old you're about to send into an urban combat hellhole? I feel like right off the bat, that's a fair question of whether a program that works in one setting can work in another, right? Well, yeah. And also, as you outline in the book, it wasn't even very clear that it worked for the 13 year old yeah. in the school. Like, there, um, yeah, so the Positive Psychology Center seems to have made all sorts of claims and, and done a bunch of research. But as you mentioned, a lot of that research has not even been published in peer-reviewed journals and it's really not clear how effective this intervention was at preventing uh, depression and anxiety among teenagers now you have martin seligman telling the army 
I think it can prevent something completely different, like PTSD, um, among a different group of people delivered in a, in a different way. And I mean, to me, like, it seems like, okay, that is an interesting idea. That is an interesting idea that we should test. Um, and it seems like uh, from your telling, some people in the army had a pretty similar uh, re- response, right? Uh, some of them were saying, yeah, well, we should, uh, we should test this. We have the resources. We can do randomized controlled trials. Um, if this works, it would be great. But that's not exactly what happened. No, and and I'm not. I don't think the push for a pilot test was mostly coming from the military. Seligman himself, to his credit, said it should be pilot tested. Richard McNally, who's a legendary PTSD researcher at Harvard, he he was in contact with the military and said the same thing. Seligman recounts in his book he went to the military and he said we should pilot test this. Um, I don't think anyone denies this. The military was so excited about the program. And so enthusiastic about rolling it out to soldiers and thought this was such an urgent issue that it was like, no, we're just we're confident in the research. We're going to roll this out. As you alluded to, around the time this is happening, there's a meta-analysis published with Jane Gillum, the creator of the program, as a co-author. What that found in the context of um, 10 to 14-year-olds is there's a statistically significant effect reducing symptoms, but... Gillum and her, and her co-authors say right there in the paper, we're not sure this is clinically significant. Um, I, I, I think your listeners will get what I mean by that. But if, if for anyone who doesn't have much training in psychology, it's like, you know, say you had a depression scale that went from one to 50. This is hypothetical. They don't usually go that high. But what does it mean for your depression symptoms to reduce two points on a 50 point scale? There, there can be times when you get a statistically significant result, meaning it's publishable, but it has very little real world importance. So that, that's what seemed to be the case with comprehensive, with, um, the Penn Resilience Program. Other meta analyses have told a similar story. No one has really showed that this idealized concept of taking non-mental health experts, teachers who are already in the classroom, teaching 10 to 14-year-olds these skills and principles can really reduce depression and anxiety in the long run. So there's already a weak evidence base. Then you're taking that to a much different setting, and you're also making a stronger claim. You're saying, we're not saying we can just reduce anxiety and depression in soldiers. We're saying we can reduce uh, PTSD and suicide, which is just a totally different constellation of claims. So what I hope I do a good job of in the chapter is showing how this like slippery slope of reasonable claims um, that you should at least test, like that PRP works in school settings, you know, all of a sudden you're making a totally different and much more radical claim, but no one really seemed to realize that or, or not or to care enough. And the end result is like this program has been a mainstay of army life for more than a decade. And I didn't get an exact estimate, but we've probably the US military has probably spent more than half a billion dollars on it, which from there from the Pentagon perspective is, is like a few fighter jets. But from a mental health perspective, think about the good you can do with five hundred million dollars to address mental health. Yeah, well so as you as you point out in the book, there are uh, you know proven well there are much more validated treatments of ptsd um that they could have spent that half a billion dollars on um i I think at one point you point out that one of the major challenges um is that a lot of ex-soldiers just don't uh seek treatment or they they don't show up um to therapy after they're back in the states um 
And that in itself, to you know, tackling that would be prob- likely a much more effective way. I mean, in some ways, we're never going to know, right? Like, they, there's no everybody got it right so i was thinking like we have no counterfactual world you know where the army did not get this um seligman training it's technically possible that it works and it reduced ptsd but we will never know uh because in the counter in the counterfactual world that doesn't exist that we can't see ptsd could be higher that's technically possible but um, that's just not a safe bet and, and, and it's just been a huge wasted opportunity where you could have tested this you could have given the money to sort of other treatments that are proven uh, and much more effective but I think like when you're wrapping up that chapter I think you do a really good job of sort of taking us through that decision making process and why in this institutional setting it was almost inevitable that Seligman was going to win out over other people with less sort of sexy, exciting ideas. Yeah, I, I contrast Seligman's approach with that of Patricia Rezik, who's a leading uh, PTSD researcher who developed one of the best validated uh, treatments. These treatments are not perfect. They have some critics. Some people say there's a bit, there's sort of a Band-Aid. Others say that they're... Um, well, they can have sort of adverse uh, effects sometimes, but overall, the evidence we have suggests they work, and that for your average soldier, a course of one of these treatments like uh, cognitive processing therapy would help. The point I make in the article is that, as Rezik told me in this sort of heartbreaking interview, the work she's doing with soldiers is not like – it's not photogenic. It's not fun. You're, you're you're helping a young person like unpack the worst day of their life, just un- like indescribable horror they've seen. You compare that with the media the army produced for comprehensive soldier fitness, which is all these like bright eyed, young, healthy looking soldiers in a room watching a trainer teach them how to be more resilient. You know, it isn't just the strength of the evidence that that determines which like whether organizations and institutions zig or zag with regard to psychological interventions. They're they're human. They're influenced by other stuff such as PR opportunities or how much it fits the internal culture of the organization. So the argument I make is like CSF really fit military ideals of self-possession and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, but it didn't work. And the programs that did work were much less uh, PR friendly. Mm. Yeah, you talk about it. Was, seems like there was one very high-ranking general, in particular, that was just incredibly enamored with this idea and this approach, uh, and it was really his call ultimately to sort of roll it out to the entire army without any testing. Yeah, there, there's a very specific scene in Seligman's book where where he says that this general thundered that they had all the data they needed, they had all the replications they needed. I think I took this language out from an earlier draft, but like one point you could make about scientists' responsibilities is like, should Seligman have stood up at that moment and been like, General, I respect what you're saying. We're adapting this to a very different setting. I really think we need a pilot test and I I really need to counsel you otherwise. And there's no indication Seligman did that. And I think that's sort of the problem. And it's an interesting exercise in what the responsibilities are of a psychologist looking to apply their research. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't help think about Martin Seligman when I, when I read that chapter and and his psychology, just because you know, academia when it's like doing, 
doing careful, rigorous science is is really hard work. You know, it's mostly done. It's mostly done by grad students. Um, and when um, when professors sort of reach a certain stage, or when somebody reaches a certain stage, uh, like Martin Seligman, um, I just think it must be incredibly intoxicating to start to uh, kind of be free of this kind of the chains of having to go through. IRB processes or peer review processes and uh, kind of arguing with ideas with the, all these nerds who are just kind of like push back in, on you in the, all these nitpicky ways. And I think like that when you start to sell a lot of books and, and people start to just like throw these huge sums of money at you and you start to achieve fame, um, I don't know. I like, I was thinking about this with the Amy Cuddy chapter too. Like, um, yeah, it's it's very understandable how these people just start to be driven by this new set of incentives and, and they start to, especially if they can have kind of fundamentally convinced themselves that their basic ideas and theories are pretty much right, you know? Um, yeah, and that, like right, right, right enough to make various claims about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so from Seligman's point of view, it's like, well, I, you know, I think it's going to do good in the world. Uh, I'm God knows how much money he's made out of all this, but I'm guessing quite a lot. Um, so I, I should say I didn't put this in the chapter, but he has said publicly, I believe that he himself has not made any money from it, but but his positive psychology center does. So it gets sort of fuzzy. Like if I if I ran an academic center and that center made money, some of which paid my salary and allowed me to hire researchers and staff, it's mm-hmm. like. I was. I didn't find that claim that convincing. I don't think I put it in the chapter. Yeah, right. And and yeah, like that's what I was. I was thinking too. Like I'm sure. Like you know, you're you're the you're the guy. Like I'm. I'm sure. I don't know who would be deciding on his salary from the Positive Psychology Center, but an enormous grant from the army that he was kind of responsible for bringing in. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I yeah. I the, what you were just saying though, I thought was really interesting about um. You know, when you have enough power, you can just sort of do what you want. I draw on this book called The Ideas Industry by a political scientist named Daniel Dresner, and he he mentions his great interview, I think someone else did, with Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist. And it's this moment of jarring self-awareness where Friedman is like, publishers will let me write a book on literally anything I want. And that's really dangerous because like no one will be like your idea sucks or you should refine this more. It's like you reach a level of of renown where you you're much more likely to sort of trip over your own feet. And it's it's interesting to think about the incentives when you're in a situation like that, which I don't unfortunately I don't think either of us is. Mm. Yeah, I, and it's it is such a shame because I mean the the I th- I do think the fundamental ideas that. Seligman had at the start of this positive psychology enterprise are good ones and deserve to be, you know, deserve funding for rigorous scientific testing and, and it, you know, could in theory make a really valuable contribution. But um, yeah, it just seems like it's, it's just become, yeah, this situation of vastly overclaiming, vastly overselling and going way, way beyond the evidence uh, in a way that, you know, and I, and I think like, it's great that you wrote this book. I hope a lot of people read the book 
but you you know you're you're not telling people as exciting a story right uh, compared oh, to no. compared it, to Martin it pre- Seligman it presents such publicity challenge I mean look I'm I'm incredibly lucky I was able to leave my job to write this book I get to talk about it on podcasts but I'd be lying if I said it's as easy to sell a book uh like this versus you know grit or or Amy Cuddy's power posing book it, there's an inherent bias in the marketplace of ideas toward uh what Daniel Dresner calls thought leaders, people who have one exciting new idea that can change the world. It, it's much harder to be the naysayer, but I just think naysaying is important. And my book isn't all naysaying anyway. No, it's not. I Well, <laughs> I like to think of it as like, it's kind of like the well actually to end all well actuallys. And like, it's, <laughs> debate, debate me, bro. <laughs> you know, you really like, but there's a lot of people out there, Jesse, who like to be the well actually guy. And I think that's your, I think that's your uh, target market for this book. Oh, I think it's important. I think the well actually guy gets a bad rap a lot of the time. It, you know, there's like, okay, there's the, well, actually, phrenology is good, right. and race science is, good. and you know those those people exist. They're unfortunate. Uh, That's but. just that can get taken out of context. That that quote, so. <laughs> yes. just, just clip me saying yeah, put that enough. in the brief. No, but like I, I just think people sort of overcorrect for the fact that there are tendentious bad faith jerks who try to like sling harmful ideas you actually you need nudges as they'd say in yiddish you need people who are annoying and who ask a lot of questions and who will go up to someone like marty seligman and say i you know i I don't think i believe your account i'd much rather have those people exist than than let the ted talk stage dictate what reality is well that i was going to talk about this later but that kind of leads me to another another thing that I kept thinking as I was reading this book, like, because in your book, I think the the people that really emerge as the, um, the heroes in academia uh, are the kind of, well, actually people, they're the naysayers, they're the people who sort of shoot down this stuff, they're the people who come along, look through data with a fine tooth comb and say, well, actually, this study didn't really support that conclusion, or well, actually, this, this study didn't right. replicate. And it got me thinking, like, God, is that all I am? Like, is that all I can aspire to in this field? Is like just existing solely for the purpose of like knocking down bullshit that other people come up with and sell to the public? And it, and I kind of wanted to ask you, like, I mean, you do sort of talk a bit in the book about um, what you what you see as uh, positive contributions from social scientists and stuff. Um, but yeah, like, what do you, because I've had this debate before with a number of people on the pod, like, what do you think social psychology's role in society is? What is our value? What do you think we have contributed to the world or possibly could contribute to the world if done, if, if we did our jobs well? Yeah, that's such a tough question. But, um, I, you know, I end the book mentioning this paper that was published over the summer by a group of many well-respected, mostly younger social psychologists basically saying we're not ready, or not just social psychologists, but psychologists in general saying we're not ready for prime time. We need to prove we deserve a seat at the table. I thought that was a really good sign that anyone would like would would kneecap their own ability to sell their interventions to the public. I think a wave of humility has hit the field, and particularly social psychology. 
And I think it's going to take a while to rebuild. In the meantime, it's not like all the ideas there are bad. I didn't end up mentioning in the book, but like um, Elizabeth Levy Pollock at Princeton designed this anti-bullying intervention. And my my sense is, A, the evidence for it is strong, but B, and almost more importantly, it has theory behind it. In a way, a lot of the ideas in my book have no real theory behind them. Like, I mentioned this this ridiculous social priming study where you look at a a statue, uh, a religious statue, and that makes you significantly more religious. Or you look at a statue of a guy just throwing a discus, that's make that makes you significantly less religious. What actual theory of human psychology could underpin a finding like that? Does anyone actually think that looking at a statue makes you much more religious, given what we know about the c- complexity of religiosity? So. I, I think there's some researchers already like really trying to do good work that is grounded in theory. And I just I think the methodological revolution and these reforms will will lead to much better science um in the long run. I, I cannot say there's a huge number of like incredibly exciting ideas I can point to because I'm so worried that any idea I, I laud is gonna I bet by the time this comes out someone wouldn't will have like debunked Elizabeth Levy Pollock's <laughs> entire um no, her work is good, but yeah, I think so too. I don't know. I mean, this is a question for you to answer to yourself, obviously, as a as a student. But I, I think a lot of the naysayers and the uh, the methodological terrorists have done more to advance psychological science than the people who got five years of TED talks and book deals, but whose ideas will be cautionary t- tales in twenty years, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so I, another area that I was very interested in in this book was your chapter about uh, implicit bias. Uh, implicit bias, um, I actually do I actually do research on implicit bias. Um, it's going to be a pretty central topic in my dissertation, so I was quite interested in this chapter. Um, but yeah, like, I, I mean, you, you've actually sort of been in debates with academics about the topic of implicit bias. I think I, I read a piece by you. Um, what was it called? Something like um, the academics pushing the implicit bias test need to get their story straight or something. Yeah, I did a long piece for New York Magazine mm. years ago. That that was like my I think eleven or twelve thousand words that I meant as just like the big piece of why we should be skeptical of this. And then I did a few follow up pieces often focusing on what I view as like muddy messaging where um, the proponents of the test seem to do a modern Bailey thing a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess like just unpack, unpack your arguments um, and uh, yeah, briefly talk about why you argue in the book that um, it, it might not be that uh, beneficial for our society to be focusing so much on the construct of implicit bias because you, you don't you don't say that you don't think it exists right uh but you do make what i think is a pretty cogent argument that maybe this is not uh where we should be focusing on uh if we want to achieve you know racial equity yeah i think implicit bias must exist just just because our, our brains as sort of pattern finding machines you know if you grow up and all you see are black people in certain roles as like athletes or criminals how could you not form that association the questions I have in raising the chapter are, well, one of them is not a question. The, the founders of the implicit association test themselves, Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald, they said in 2015 in a paper, the test is too noisy to diagnose individuals as being likely to engage in discrimination. So right off the bat, 
I don't know why people are still taking this test and, and treating the results as all that meaningful. Um, so that that should be settled. Although I just saw a morning news show, national morning news show, like a couple of weeks ago, where they there she was again touting the test. That that's one issue. My my broader argument is the there's been a wag the dog effect, um, a tail wagging the dog effect, where because this test is so sexy we assume everything goes down to implicit bias. And I think that's like a pretty big and important claim because, you know, if 50% of the racial disparity in America were caused by implicit bias, you would absolutely dump massive resources into addressing implicit bias. I don't think there's evidence that implicit bias is that much of a like discrimination pie. At the very least, no one's proven it. So but to me, between like structural racism and explicit discrimination, which we still have some of, I, you know, I, I just would focus way more on those and on getting poor people money, which just happened for once in this big new stimulus bill, than on implicit bias. I just I don't understand the fixation on implicit bias. Other than that, it's just a a meme that that went super viral. Yeah. Well, I kind of think Americans will jump on any sort of explanation or potential thing that they can change to fix racial inequality that doesn't involve like actually fixing things like wealth yeah. wealth transfers no, and, and this one is a fun ride man if you're look it is white liberals who have the most influence on these policies and what we pursue if you're a white liberal like man going on that that psychological roller coaster of of taking this test and grappling with your bias and learning your bias it's all very exciting and very narcissistic i just i think a lot of thinkers smarter than myself have pointed out that like turning racial justice into a matter of individual consciousness raising um is not the right approach. And and the chapter sort of argues after laying out my problems with the IIT just points out the limitations of that approach because like, I'm just not convinced that, that people having the wrong attitudes, explicit or implicit really accounts for all that much of like the racial wealth gap. I, I just think I'm, I'm from a, a white affluent, pretty affluent suburb where like all the white people have the right ideas. Like if you ask them their explicit views and yet I suspect if someone wanted to open up low-income housing there or build low-income housing in the middle of one of their nice leafy neighborhoods, which is the sort of thing that desegregates a community and and increases access to, the op- to opportunity in the form of like a great school system, I hate to say it, I think most of the people I grew up with would be opposed to that. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to say, um, I, I read the chapter with interest because... I actually think the psychometrics of the IAT might be even worse than you say in the chapter. I know I was, I was quite interested. So you, Ooh, you do tell. Okay, so I might get in trouble for this. Probably not. Um, but the you kind of put the um, your estimate that you come down on for the test retest reliability of the race IAT to be about zero point five. Um, Totally based on like actual experts, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and you got it from Calvin Lai. So, but okay, every single time I have examined anything to do with the IAT, the psychometrics are worse than they are advertised in in these. Like, so first of all, not many papers test the test retest reliability. 
of the IAT, right? Like there's not there's not a huge body of evidence. It's like most people, and I think even fewer of them test the race one in particular. Yeah, or, right, exactly. I, if memory serves, um, yeah. And so it's not that much evidence. It's fairly small samples. Um, so the, as far as I know, the largest sample is Calvin Lai's own data, where he got people in U.S. colleges to take it um, two times. Now the test retest reliability there was 0.25, uh, so Jeez. substantially lower than what he told you. And if you ask Calvin about that, what he will say is, "Oh, but we got that. Those participants used a shortened version of the IAT." So you can sort of see, like. That's interesting. That might be the explanation. Or yeah. maybe, because you, Calvin, have a far larger sample than anybody has used to test this test-retest reliability before. That might actually be a, a, a better estimate because you have a much larger sample. Um, and you're saying there's no reason to favor one of those two explanations over the other without knowing more. Right, right. Like, that's that's to me, is an open question. I also... So the project implicit data... The, those people don't use a shortened version and some of them provide user IDs. So I've looked at that data and I've identified people who took it more than once. And there the test retest reliability was 0.25 as well. So, and that was about 1600 people, like about 1200 people as well. So a much larger sample size than typically these estimates are based on. Oh, wow. So, so you're saying like even even what I report in the book, which which in my understanding would already put it well below where you'd want something like that to be, you're saying this story could be much worse. It could really be. I, I would bet. I would bet if we did a registered report, um, and you know we could do it if if we if we could find I don't know a thousand dollars to pay participants to do this. I would bet if we did a registered report, we would find the test retest reliability of the race IT to be much lower than 0.5. That's what we need, though. We need more of that, like Phil Tetlocky and you in a friendly way challenging Calvin Lie on Twitter. And be like, get at me, bro. Well, yeah, like I, and I'm, I don't know, like I, I, have never met Calvin, and I, I've had a bit of um, interaction with him, and he, he seems like a, like a, really scientifically minded, like. Um, person, I agree. I've, he, I've he only also, had good interactions with him, even as I was bashing the test. Sorry, but go ahead. Yeah, he also like he was on the board of Project Implicit, um, and so. Yeah, like yeah. It, it's not impossible that there's some inter- incentive there to maybe oversell the psychometric problem. Do you think? Do you think he's implicitly biased in favor <laughs> in favor of the IAT? <laughs> I mean, I think I'm pretty sure I can diagnose that uh, from from sort of tweets and emails um, at a pretty high level of accuracy. They, so I, they I, should build an IAT that measures your implicit beliefs about the IAT. Yeah, no. So I I want I just wanted to tell you that cuz I, I it's just sort of an interesting tidbit and, and something that I've that has stood out to me in my research. Um for me like okay, um it's a very very noisy measure um but there is still a lot of signal in the noise and there is still uh there is still sort of relationships and in some ways the fact that it is such a noisy test um, makes the relatively small correlations with discriminatory behavior look a little better because when you have a noisy test, that's going to suppress uh, the size, the statistical size of relationships with discriminatory behavior. So for me, it's like I, I'm, I'm kind of with you in that like I I do think it's uh, a very plausible um, construct that is, is likely to exist. I just think we have... Um, not very good tools at measuring it and and anytime we do research on it we need to kind of we need to sort of keep that in mind um and you're certainly right that we shouldn't be using the iat to diagnose people and i wanted to ask you because i don't know this is project implicit still telling people their score uh 
I'm almost certain it is. I mean, we could Google this right now. Let me see. Quick clarification. Project Implicit is still telling people their score. Back to the podcast. Okay. Yeah, I think I do think they've gotten a little bit better at hedging it, but I, I just I'm against people taking it and getting their result, frankly. In the same way I'd be against people taking as noisy a depression or anxiety test. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's a yeah, it's it's certainly problematic to be telling people like I, I, I don't understand why they wouldn't be giving sort of confidence intervals, right? Like so if you if you get a D score of point three, point four, point five, they could quite easily fit confidence intervals around that and say you know like based on the probabilities and based on the noise you know here's here's the sort of range where we think your sort of true score lies because it does it does seem like people do have some stable true score it's just very very hard to sort of get at that statistically but another thing another thing i was thinking in the iat chapter is this sort of fascinating distinction that you've kind of mentioned in this podcast but i i felt sort of was missing from the book between statistical significance and effect size right so you at one point it was fascinating to me because you quoted um i think it was greenwald and Banerjee, uh and you sort of had them saying this test can reliably predict who is more likely to engage in discriminatory behavior, right? And you use this quote and you're like, aha, but these meta-analyses show that like it doesn't really do that. And and what you mean is like, well, it doesn't do that very well, right? The the correlation is like 0.1 or 0.2. So we're explaining like 1% of the variance. But if you think about it, even with a weak 0.1 correlation, which explains 1% of the variance, everything Greenwald and Banerjee said was technically true, right? Like, it's yeah. still technically true that scores <laughs> predict, right? Uh, like, they do predict, uh, you, you know, you know a little bit more if you know the score about the outcome. They do predict better than chance. And, and you can use the score to define a group of people that is more likely meaning, you know, slightly more likely to engage in discriminatory behaviors. Yeah. So, I th- so go ahead. I think that, no, no, I didn't mean to talk over you. I think that is and isn't a fair critique. It's definitely a fair critique in the sense that you can be like, okay, what they're saying is technically true based on the research. I think their context was clearly implying to readers, as they said over and over, you take this test, you get your score, it tells you something important not just important, but like life-changing based on their own reactions to it about how likely you are to engage in uh, discrimination. So if you communicated that as you scored in this range, so you are 0.5% more likely to engage in this contrived lab setting discrimination, discriminatory behavior relative to someone who scored a zero, like something very specific, I wouldn't mind. But like in the context of their book, which also says that they think implicit bias, excuse me, in the context of their book, which also says that they think implicit bias credibly could be seen as playing a larger role than explicit bias, which I think is totally unfounded. um, I I just find it deceptive just in terms of like communicating findings for a lay audience. Oh, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. But this is kind of what I started thinking with this book is that because like you have a really good section where you talk about statistical significance, right? Um, And I just wonder if 
the book needs some section really to talk about the distinction between statistical significance and and, and effect size, right? Because at, at certain times, I'll, I'll give you one one sort of clear example. Like at, at, at a certain point, you talk about um, the, maybe it was in the grit chapter, but something was like not a good predictor because it explained 0.8% of variance, right? Um, and so you're talking about practical significance now, like actual clinical significance. And, and you yeah. sort of, you make this move a lot and, and it's a valid move to talk about, well, you know, people are selling this as this big important thing, but at, like, look, look how much variance it actually explains in this outcome. At the same time, you mentioned at one point the, um, the famous Bertrand and Melanathan um, uh, resume audit study. Uh, yep. And you sort of present those re- results the classical way, which is that, oh, white-sounding names got 50% more callbacks than black-sounding names. But do you know how much variance race explained in callback <laughs> rates? Oh, man, it sounds like a fair critique. What, what was the variance? 0.6. So, and they don't report that, right? They, they report the result in the way right. that makes it sound. Um, and I, I actually just, that's an estimate I came up with by um, simulating data that matched the callback rates because the callback rates were like 6% to 9%. So if you, right. if you sort of simulate data, like you can show, oh, that's 0.6%. Um, but, right, like a small effect. See, this is something that our field still is having trouble thinking its way through, right? Because sometimes small effects can add up to something quite meaningful. There's a, an amazing paper by um, a statistician who was thinking about small effects and how they can accumulate over time into being really important. And he figured out that, so in baseball, a batter's batting average, so like the, whatever it is, the percentage of time they get on base, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a baseball fan, explains something like 0.3% of variance over whether they're going to hit the ball. Uh, when they're up up to bat, right? So, so you could take you could take <laughs> which sounds like yeah yeah you could take that and say oh well like it doesn't matter Bat- batting average doesn't matter so like we should just not think about that when we recruit the players. But his argument was well no it matters a lot because over time like that that small that small difference from having a high uh, batting average having a low batting average your team is much much better off having players with high batting averages on them. So. Yeah, it's really, I don't know, I still struggle with this a lot myself, and it's something that I've thought about a lot um, in grad school. And it's it's certainly something that is completely missing from almost all public communication about psychological findings. Um, like if you if you go out and you say, yeah, you know, oh, white, white resumes got uh, more callbacks than black resumes, 50% more, um, this... It's, it's just so easy for people to overinflate uh, the impact of that effect in their minds. Um, not to mention it was like sort of an experiment and other sources of variance have been controlled in that context. So it's like um, likely in the context of the experiment, it's ex- explaining a lot more variance than you would get like in society when there's all sorts of other factors that are not controlled um, going into it. But yeah, like... I've got to somehow turn this into a question so you can speak because I've been I've been told to <laughs> well, stop <laughs> stop with these monologues. But I don't know any any thoughts. No, I mean I, I think it it seems like a fair critique. I guess I tell me if this is right because you're definitely better at the stats than I am. I think there's probably a little bit of a difference where you're like 
okay, that we, we, millions of resumes get sent out or millions of people smoke cigarettes. So in those contexts, a small effect size can have like real important, meaningful real world significance. Um, a high versus a low IT score reflecting 1% of the difference in the likelihood of engaging in simulated racism, sometimes defined as sitting too close to or too far from a black confederate in an experiment. Maybe it's sort of like an external validity issue where it's like the thing you're correlating with isn't itself that much mapped onto to real world outcomes. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. Um, and that's a question that I've struggled with quite a lot myself, right? Like, so you have this noisy IAT score that predicts 1% of this one specific behavior that you've studied, right? Um, and, okay, but then I guess, like, I think Greenwald has made this argument and I still don't honestly know what I think of it. And we kind of made a similar argument in a, in a paper, some, some co-authors and I, but I still sort of, yeah, it's still, like, is very confusing to me. Like, so this person who is slightly more likely to engage in discriminatory behavior in this situation, you know, they then leave that room and they enter a new situation and then they enter a new situation and a new situation. And, and like they enter a lot of situations in their life. So like, even if almost like the batter, right. That faces a lot of pitches and then the, the slight difference, um, this small effect size adds up to something meaningful. Yeah. It's, it definitely seems to me that in some situations, and actually we talked to, um, I think there's some people to, who are smarter than me who are like actually thinking about this. Like, how do we decide when an effect is likely to be cumulative and, and not? And, and how, do we, how do we tell the difference? Because there's certainly some occasions where you might want to say, oh, it's, it's half a percent of variance, right? Like, this, this doesn't matter that much. But there's probably also some other situations where it's like, oh, half a percent of variance is accumulating and, and does matter. And I think, I don't know, to me, like, I just think I don't really understand it. Uh, and this stuff, I don't know, it's just, I don't know. When people like Martin Seligman or um, Amy Cuddy, when they communicate their work to society, like, it's only ever talking about is, there's an effect or there's not an effect. And, and I think, right. like it's almost inevitable that almost any time you tell somebody about a psychological finding, it's automatically inflated in their mind, the importance of that. I think those are good points. And that's also sort of the next layer, the more statistically sophisticated layer of looking into this, sort of the next step with some of these interventions. I will say, for example, with grit, I mean, let's say it accounts for 0.5% of the variance in grades, just to take the the example you mentioned. Um you combine that with the fact that there's no reliable, scalable way that we know of of changing grit in the first place or like or durably changing grit. I think you can combine those two facts and that's more than enough reason for for a lot of skepticism versus something like smoking where we think we know how to get people to stop smoking and, and instantly take advantage of that variance. Mm-hmm. Um, does, that, does that strike you as at all credible? Yeah, definitely. I mean, something like a grade is already an accumulation of all sorts of situations, right? So I think, like, yeah, if, if you show, like, a as kind of a negligible effect on an outcome like that, uh, you can make a much better argument that this thing is maybe trivial, not not that important, not that not that um, 
worthy of our time. And yeah, it was striking. Like I, I told you before, I, I didn't quite get through the grit chapter, but I did. I did read that part where even Angela Duckworth has admitted that she doesn't know how to shift grit around. I like that you lack the grit to get through the grit <laughs> chapter. Yeah, no, I guess I. I I felt like there was good stuff coming in the IAT chapter and and at the end <laughs> and I just I it's wanted to kind. make sure I got to it. But man, like I never read books. Like you should be very flattered that I read like ninety percent of this because I am a slow ass reader and I very rarely read books. So I appreciate it. All right, cool. So before we stop talking about the book and move on to another subject that I want to broach, um, yeah, any just any last pitch you want to make to the listeners uh about why they should read the book uh no i mean i look i especially for a first-time author uh early sales matter a great deal so i i hope this sounds intriguing to people and that your listeners will consider uh buying it at their local bookstore or amazon if they must uh but yeah i really appreciate the chance to talk about it i thought your questions were really good and smart which shouldn't surprise me <laughs> well i am a philadelphia 76ers fan so <laughs> you, you shouldn't have expected it necessarily i um no I, I think it's an awesome book i like i said i really hope a lot of people read it um you just need to find all the well actually people um <laughs> exactly. and i think i said well actually guys earlier which is probably sexist because women can totally say and non-binary people can totally say well actually too all genders it's, can well actually yes such a stereotype anyway that kind of leads me <laughs> somewhat uh somewhat nicely into the other thing i wanted to discuss with you so oh boy so you are a somewhat controversial figure would it be fair to say in some circles in some circles in some yeah. circles i don't I sort of reject the that I'm in any macro level controversial just because I've been really lucky since becoming controversial and seem to my audience seems to be growing. Um, but yeah, in some circles, I'm definitely controversial. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would include um, sort of psychology in that, right? So I, I really had no idea about any of the controversy surrounding you. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, you went on the Two Psychologists Four Beers podcast, and there was then, um, and mainly just talking about the IAT, right? Because uh, that was when you were sort of yeah. doing journalism on that. Um, so, and I, I thought it was a great pod. Um, so then later, uh, or a bit, a bit later, there was some kind of controversy where some scientists were uh, criticizing. Um, the open science movement broadly, but I think specifically the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Sciences on a number of grounds. But one of the grounds was that they uh, were associating with unethical journalists. Uh, is, that the, that, is that the exact phrasing? I think that was the exact phrasing. And um, it kind <laughs> of awesome. came out that like you were like largely who they were talking to. I, I can't think of anybody else who that they might have been talking about. And um, I remember on just seeing on Twitter, I think it was either Mickey or Yoel from Two Psychologists, Four Beers were kind of as surprised by this as I was. And they were saying, oh, really? Like, so what did, what did he do? And um, nobody actually said what you had done, but there were sort of clear implications that you had sort of 
um, were transphobic and had done things. I re- I, this this moment stuck with me. I mean, I, I'm happy to name a name here, but um, I think his name is pronounced Tej Rai. He's a very well-respected young social psychologist. He's also an editor at Science, and his response to being asked for evidence that these two guys should be socially sanctioned just for having me on the podcast was to say that uh, it's obnoxious to ask for evidence because it's exhausting to marginalize people. Yeah. Which I found surprising coming from someone who's in a scientific gatekeeping role because my view, which might be out of fashion at this point, is that evidence is just good. And especially if you're seeking to sanction or punish someone, it's reasonable to ask for evidence. Um, I've now seen this in a few other contexts, but this idea that evidence is good unless people are the wrong, I guess, skin color or like have the wrong sexual orientation or gender identity. I'd be interested to see Tej. Do, am I pronouncing his name right? I'm not meaning to not. Uh, I think Smriti said it's more like likely to be Tej. Tej, Tej Rai. Okay. Yeah, either way, I'd, I would love to see him. This was just a tweet. I don't want to over-extrapolate from a tweet, but I'd like to see him explain how to operationalize this view of evidence where evidence only matters when some like racial groups are being accused of stuff. Cause I just don't think that works. And I found it surprising, but um, yeah, he and he and a few others were mad at, at Mickey and Yoel um, for having me on the podcast. They, I was, it's weird being at the center of these miniature online storms. I was so impressed with their response. They addressed it in the next podcast and they just said, look, if you can't explain what this guy did to warrant um, this anger, we're, you know, we're not going to do anything about it. And and what people were mad about was a uh, cover story I had in the Atlantic in 2018 about transgender youth that staked out uh, what I view as like a pro-transition stance, but also raised these issues of what the diagnostic process should look like, particularly for, for teenagers, for adults. I'm basic. I'm in favor of, um, of informed consent, where I think at the end of the day, legal adults should get to make their own healthcare decisions and be given hormones if they want hormones. But um, the diagnostic process for like 13 and 14 year olds, if you talk to actual gender clinicians, which I spent a lot of time doing, is actually pretty complicated and interesting. So that's what I focused on. Yeah, you put out a pod just last week, uh, a very long interview with a gender clinician. Um, and I highly recommend everybody listen to it. And I, I think it would be very difficult for anybody to listen to it and come away from it thinking that you know you're some kind of transphobic monster as like half of twitter seems to believe but anyway yeah i wanted to i wanted to unpack this a little bit just because like often when you come up um and there's a request for evidence like no evidence is forthcoming like people sort of react like like the way that you described um Tej uh, reacting right um that like the request for evidence is itself oppressive and like i can kind of see an argument there about oh it's emotional labor you're, you're sort of making people constantly prove that there, there, to, to be clear that comes from a true historical place which is like women not being believed when they say they've been raped sometimes that's written into the law that women's evidence isn't worth as much black people not being believed when they make accusations of racism but this is, this is a professional psychologist on Twitter. Tejrai is not, this is not a, a, a apples to apples comparison, but I didn't mean to discount the idea that that was a dynamic or that, um, you know, certain forms of epistemic injustice, as it's called, have occurred. 
Yeah, totally, totally. Um, but I also just keep coming back to, well, you know, what's what's the alternative? Like, you know, yeah. a, like, a, you know, that, and I've never heard anybody give sort of a good... The alternative answer, is, de- like, is deference. We say this right. guy's bad, so you need to say he's bad. I mean, yeah, like, I think right. any honest accounting is the alternative is deference, which I just, I, I can't do. That's not in me to be... I'm I'm the well actually guy. I'm naturally inquisitive and skeptical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I mean, as you pointed out, like, well, okay. So I mean, there were calls for like basically the open science community to shun you, right? Uh, at a time when you were trying to write a book about yeah. the replication crisis. So like, I mean, happily. Well, what hap- let me. What happened was an Australian researcher made this call to shun me. I screenshotted it and was just like, I, I think this is, I forget what I said exactly. It was something along the lines of, I, I think this is sort of ridiculous to try to cut off my access to sources without explaining what I've done wrong. She subsequently claimed that she endured days of harassment because I had criticized her call for me to be shunned. Um, I hope she wasn't harassed, but I just, I don't like, you know, I, I'm going to respond to someone making what seems to be a pretty direct threat to my ability to do my job. And yeah, and I, I think that's fair enough. But but so um, I, you know, I spent many years, like many years, couple of years, not really aware of what you'd done and tried quite a few times, <laughs> you know, sometimes on Twitter uh, or elsewhere to just sort of ask people, so what, what, what did he actually do that's wrong? Like, cause I mean, I read your, I read your Atlantic piece. There's nothing in it uh, that's, you know, problematic or, you know, and it seems very well researched. And um, a, to me, you come across as having quite a lot of empathy for trans people. Um, however, so I have a friend and this friend does not want their name in the podcast. So I, I'm not going to name them. Um, but this friend is um, sort of pretty deeply embedded in this uh, sort of online trans activist scene um, and does have sort of does have issues with you. But I, I to me, like not in the sort of kind of just enraged middle school in groupy way. Like, and I think so this person like because we have a relationship a pre-existing relationship i've been able to sort of engage with them a bit deeper about this and and you know we've we've had a very long back and forth which i shared with you and it reached 29 29 pages which was absurd uh and i, I, I should know. say i i didn't read that in part because i wanted you to be able to ask me these questions fresh on the podcast and in part because you wouldn't have had any way to know this but it's just I've seen a lot of screenshots like that. It's just, it gets weird and it just feels off to see people like talking shit about you. But this kind of thing where what I've asked my critics for repeatedly and always been turned down a hundred percent of the time in the past years is just a conversation, some sort of public way, not debate me, bro, because I think there's often less disagreement than they claim there is. But um, I, I think this is great. So if you have specific questions, I'd yeah, love to yeah, answer them. Yeah, totally. So my friend's, I, I kind of, I mean, they originally sh- shared with me the Noah Berlatsky <laughs> Jesse Single Resource page, <laughs> yeah. which is a, uh, like, um, 
uh, let, let's just not even talk about that. But it's basically somebody who hates you, who's put together a resource page of everything bad anybody has ever said about you on the internet. And a lot of it is pretty clearly lies. Like, and you've spent a fair bit of time and energy. And it was it was very funny to me that like after the Harper's letter came out, and there was that response to the Harper's letter, one of the things that they included uh, to sort of uh, denounce you was you showing that somebody had been dishonest about you like they literally linked to a google document that you'd wrote showing that somebody had been dishonest and and the charge was he has sort of harassed trans people online and i don't know that that stuff that stuff has reached a level of absurdity um however i think like even my friend acknowledges that right um and they they think that yeah like it can get very toxic if somebody is sort of declared persona non grata then it's almost like all gloves are off anything goes uh any allegation is is just shared and noah balatsky (laughs) whacks it on the jesse sickle resource page but okay so here's like i asked them okay really tell me distill what what did he do like what what has he done like what why does everybody hate this guy and so they have put it down to it's like two basic things right um and the first is <laughs> one i'm ugly <laughs> <laughs> no sorry so I, I shouldn't even the, joke the, I, I do want to get this sorry. the first is um in their view um you've written about detransition irresponsibly right so uh, let me let me give a chance Give me a chance to steel man this before before you respond, right? So, like you've written, um, like you sort of when I listen to your pod now, you now sort of say that well we don't we don't have very good data about how common detransition is. So detransition, just for people not aware, is just when somebody um, at one point wants to transition to a sort of the binary gender different from their sex assigned at birth, and then later decides that they. They do not want to. Transition. It's not just the intention that that that's a. I think that was more accurately desistance. De-tra- sorry, I'm I'm not trying to be that guy, but like detransition means you actually at some point transition, whether physically or socially, then transition back. Okay, interesting. Okay, okay. So that's that's helpful because that we need to sort of keep that because that those are quite different things. Okay, so there. Okay, so I think they say a couple of things that are almost definitely true. Um, and so one is that if if parents of um, children who say they're trans um, believe that it's very likely uh, that their child will desist, um, they may be less likely to uh, affirm uh, the gender that they are, are saying that they are. Right? Um, if if um, if it's widely believed that um, you know the majority of um, kids who say they're trans desist I do think that it's possible that that makes it um, that could make it less likely for those kids to get gender affirming care um, and what my friend would would say and what they have said at length is that um, like you've written a couple of pieces in the past where you sort of gave this uh, 80% figure Right, that um, and I think like it was based on research that you'd done, um, but I also think maybe you no longer would write that in exactly the same way. Tell me if I'm if I'm right about that. I think I used the eighty percent figure in one article I wrote, um, 
a New York Magazine article, I intentionally did not use it in the Atlantic article. What I said in the Atlantic article is that all the available evidence suggests that a significant percentage of kids desist. And the risk is apparent either saying my kid has gender dysphoria, so they're definitely trans, they're definitely going to feel that way forever, or, and this is the problem of this whole meme of rapid onset gender identity, a parent saying, well, he'll grow out of it, or she'll grow out of it. Parents, I think, sometimes want a lot of long-term certainty about what their child's like gender path is going to be. So I agree that this statistic can be used by parents uh, to rush to judgment either way. But at the end of the day, I, I wouldn't say 80% anymore. Like one clinician, one of the leading clinicians at the Dutch clinic, which has a specific approach that's and has produced some of the best and most comprehensive data, he said it was probably around 60% in his clinic. So to me, if the number I'm stealing this from another great clinician I interviewed, he told me it would be one thing if the desistance percentage was a hundred percent. That would mean kids always like quote unquote grow out of feeling trans or having gender dysphoria. See, um, similarly, if the percentage was zero, we'd know this kid's always going to feel this way. Anything far from a hundred percent or zero percent, which I think is where we're at, implies you need some level of clinical care and like thoughtful, compassionate just sitting with a kid and, and talking to them. And the um, the interview you mentioned, I just posted with uh, Dr. Erica Anderson. She's trans herself. She transitioned as an adult. And over 80 minutes, we just talked through like some of what that process looks like, which I think is important for, for parents to know. So I agree that parents could misuse those statistics. I agree. I'm not really comfortable saying 80%. I don't think it's a crazy estimate. If someone held a gun to my head, I would say, in this one Dutch clinic with a specific approach that is pretty gatekeepy, 60%. Um, so yeah, I, I, I shy, I don't use the 80% figure anymore. Yeah. And so the other thing that my friend says that I think is likely to be true is just that, um, so in, in the piece where you gave the 80% figure, the way you phrased it, might not have been the best way to phrase it, right? So you wrote 80% of these kids end up feeling okay, more or less, with the gender they were assigned at birth or the, the sex they were assigned at birth. And they, so my to my friend, they just think that this is is a bit of a, um, maybe it's like a cavalier way to describe desistance. And they, and they talk about how, at one stage, Julia Serrano, for example, would have been classified as a desister uh, because, you know, it's very, very hard to be trans in our society. Like it's it's very, um, you know, I and I think that that's really likely to be true is that like a lot of kids um, who might have gender dysphoria, and I think you guys covered this in your pod, just might not understand how hard it's actually going to be to sort of start presenting as as the other gender in, in society. And so a lot of people sort of, quote unquote, desist or decide, you know, sort of not to make that social transition, not because they feel okay, right, in, in their original gender, but, but just because they realize that they kind of go back into the closet uh, because of society, which is, is not not very nice to them or not not very affirming uh, of their trans identity when they try it yeah i think uh 
you often hear people make claims that many or most of detransitioners detransitioned because of reasons like that, because of societal oppression, or sometimes it can also just be more practical. You run out of money for hormones, you lose access to healthcare, you have to move. Uh, Robin Kanner, who I like a lot, she's a trans woman who um, worked for the Biden campaign, and I think works at the White House now. She wrote uh, a story- You had her on your podcast, right? Yeah, my, my, my baby podcast before I launched the, the real one with Katie. Um, I love this. Yeah, she, thank you. Uh, she's an example of someone that happened to. We don't actually know what percentage of desistance or detransition cases that accounts for. I think – so when I say 60% of kids about in the Amsterdam clinic desisted, that's a context where they're already in contact with a mental health care system where they can eventually, if they want – Go on puberty blockers and hormones in in the Netherlands, which is a, a pretty accepting society for that sort of stuff. Do some does some percentage of those kids have sort of a a fake desistance and will later come out as trans again? Yeah, that could be. The, the number is not zero, but it's like or exactly they could just live in the closet their, their whole life, right? And and not not feel sure. Good. Yes, mm. that I mean that's unfalsifiable. Any you know anyone. Um, I could say some trans people maybe have thoughts of detransitioning, but there's mm. social pressure not to. Mm. Um, my point is when you have when you have 60% in a clinic like that, which is like probably one of the best places to be a trans kid in the world and nowhere where you'll have better access to transition if that's what you eventually want to do. You know, I, I take um, Julia Serrano's point, but I just don't find it credible that 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 percentage would dip down that much if we accounted for such kids. I think it's a fair point to make in general that we shouldn't assume anyone who desists or detransitions does because their fundamental identity has changed forever. But um, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So I guess like it seems like yeah. I I mean I do think like when you, when you said uh, they feel okay, right? Like this is like. This is going a bit beyond the data in a way that I, I maybe like would concede to my friend, right? Like, because I know I do think even in the Netherlands, it would be really fucking hard to to be trans. Um, and one, you know, one other thing I should mention, that study, they're not when we say desist, the question is whether they met clinical threshold for gender dysphoria. Like, do you have this symptom? Do you have that symptom? So I just think that's a more specific clinical approach than like, do you identify as trans? Because especially these days, um, identifying as trans means a lot of different things and not always having dysphoria. What the Amsterdam clinic is worried about is gender dysphoria. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Okay. So you're saying they get a 60% figure from Literally, you used to be diagnosable as having gender dysphoria, and now you you don't meet. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the people. Um, I'm reading the the sentence I wrote. While the actual percentages vary from study to study, overall, it appears about that about eighty percent of kids with gender dysphoria end up feeling okay in the long run with the bodies they were born into. Um, you know. I, it's probably not quite 80%, but I think if you phrase it that carefully and you make sure that what you're talking about is gender dysphoria, which is not something always present in trans people, um, I just think that that's a little bit of a different and maybe narrower claim than than the fair point you and your friend are making about how some people might uh, 
detransition or not talk about being trans as a result of of oppression basically hmm. so i mean one one thing that one thing that my friend has pointed out a number of times is that like those articles are still online right um and they at the end of our conversation they were wondering if it was possible that you might amend them slightly to reflect your changing positions on this like is there yeah how do you how do you feel about that yeah i mean i no longer work at new york magazine so i'd have to email an editor i need to think about this a little i don't want to make a promise i think what i could do is i could add a parenthetical saying that you know, uh, it's 2021. I no longer use this exact percentage. This one clinician said that in his clinic, the percentage was about 60. There's a, a case to be made. It's an overestimate. Um, you know, part of the problem is I would then likely link to a couple of newsletter posts I've done against the idea that it's a crazy overestimate. Cause as we discussed off air, um, I do think that relies on a misunderstanding of the DSM three. That's a whole other issue. But yeah, the short answer is I'm open to that and I'll, Think about that, and you should feel free to nudge me on it. If it was something like, you know, when I said feel okay, I didn't just mean that one day everything vanished and they were happily ever after. Like, I'm talking in a very technical sense about we're no longer, like, diagnosable as having gender dysphoria or something something like that. So, I mean, the other... Yeah, so the other major complaint that my friend had about you is that... And I am not really as much in agreement about this, but it's just that you've at certain times strawmanned uh some of your opponents in in this debate um and they particularly focused on julia serrano and just some i think tweets that you wrote sort of suggesting that she thinks like detransitioners don't exist or or desisters like desistance never happens right and i yeah like i think like to me i it just seemed like kind of internet shorthand right like when you're just writing tweets and if if somebody's like i mean even my friend was trying to argue in that same discussion that they were arguing for a figure more close to like four percent and and to me i was i was saying like well if you're trying to argue that it's that low it's it's like it's effectively non-existent for sort of policy purposes so like you know what's the what's the difference but yeah i don't know i think like but like just to clarify you don't think that julia serrano thinks that it's zero right like you know that they no i thought she's been she was very dismissive of detransitioners who i've interviewed and are unhappy with the care they got and my bigger gripe is with vox that presented her as an expert on detransition without bothering to interview detransition people or at least nod to their um genuine existence i i I just think her i really disagree with her on this I, i just do of course, I don't think she literally thinks detransitioners are a myth, but if you read the interview she did with Vox, in my view, she's like really trying to do like the look over there thing, um, without grappling with some of the clinical complexity that I, you know, that I much later discussed with Erica Anderson or, or in my Atlantic article. Yeah. I mean, well, there was a, I'm not sure if Julia Serrano wrote it, but there was a major piece called, and the title was The Detransition Myth. That's, I mean, right, yes. People talk about the myth of detransition, the myth of desistance, and then you try to call them all that. They say, no, 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 we don't mean it's a myth. We mean the 80... So from my point of view, and and my critics don't necessarily know this because these are just like random newsletter medium posts, I've 
I've spent like dozens of hours responding to the feeling you get as a journalist when you write an article, you write the Atlantic article, you very specifically leave out the 80% number because you no longer trust it. You make a, a, a conscious decision not to use this figure and then think progress runs an article saying Jesse Single referred to the debunked 80% figure when it's literally not in your article. I think I sometimes get defensive because so many of the attacks have just been like making stuff up, which unfortunately happens online. But um, <laughs> questions. Well, just, yeah. just today, right? I saw you would. Oh, oh yeah, I'm against ba- I'm, a, I'm against trans women using the bathrooms, according to a Buzzfeeder who was fired for plagiarism. You can check my feed if you want to go to that. Anyway, that's why I appreciate the, the like the questions you just asked me are totally fair and worthwhile points of um, clarification. But from my point of view, I've just written tens of thousands of words, and way too much of that has just been free writing, where I'm not getting paid, where I'm just like responding to like people putting words in my mouth. But um. Everything you've asked me, I find to be fair. Yeah, dude. Like, I know, like, you have this tendency to shrug this off. And even earlier in the podcast, I said you're a controversial figure. And you're like, no, 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 like, I'm, I'm fine. But seriously, man, like, I can't think of that many people who I feel have been treated, like, less fairly than you in this in this whole cancel culture cult, <laughs> culture world. What about, thing. What like, about Anne Frank? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, 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 like, I know, I know, I know. You mean, like, I know what you mean, like, but um, <laughs> just like, I, I think recently you criticized some journalist, some food journalist, and their response was to tweet that Jesse Single pooped and then ate <laughs> his poop and then kept eating it. And like, it's like, I, I know, but uh, come on, should I feel. I, Have I well, been canceled because a New Yorker writer is a moron well, you, no, and he's showing I mean, that online? It's not. No, you you haven't been canceled, but it's how it's how you're treated. And I think like for for somebody like me, who just sort of starts following you because I I hear you talked about uh, you know you you were on um, two psychologists four beers, and then you know spends years trying to find what you did wrong to be treated this way and then somebody finally tells me and it's these kind of complex nuanced issues where maybe you didn't word one sentence completely the right way and stuff like that and just i don't know to see the way you're treated it's like it makes me unhappy man so like you (laughs) thank you i I just i i just want to like i it would be disingenuous for me to okay it'd be disingenuous for me to say it doesn't bother me because it does bother me. It bothers me to to be misrepresented and to see unhinged shit said about me. But it would also be disingenuous for me to be like, woe is me, when on net the controversy has benefited my career and I'm incredibly lucky. I make a living from writing a newsletter and hosting a dumb podcast with my dumb friend. Like I'm I and I, <laughs> and I have a book coming out. I've like sort of hit the lottery. And what I will continue to do is once in a while I'll get mad on Twitter and I'll say to someone, if you think I'm this bad, just point to me what I've said, or I'll ask people for conversations and they'll turn me down. Parker Malloy, I'd still love to have a public conversation with you. Parker called for me to be fired, uh, but then wouldn't talk about it. Uh so yeah, I appreciate your sympathy. I get really kind notes of support. Like even during a pylon, when Twitter's at its worst, the the ratio of like positive to negative emails, which takes a little effort to write, is like ten to fifty or fifteen to one. So um, it's kind of you to say. I just I of all the journalists or things in journalism worth worrying about, 
people should not worry about me. Journalism is so screwed and so many people are getting laid off and losing their jobs. And I'm, I get to come on and tout a book I just wrote for my podcast. I'm, I'm incredibly blessed. Well, that's good, man. Because yeah, I, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, appreciate you a lot. Love your podcast. Really enjoyed this book. Uh, Thank you. you know, and like I said, there's not actually many people willing to do or able to do, uh, this kind of work um, and really get into the nitty gritty of um, social science. And I think, um, yeah, it's much needed. And I, yeah, like I hope a lot of people buy and read this book. Me too. Thank you so much for having me on, Paul. No worries. All right. Uh, have a good week. You were going for a run now, right? So, I am. And then I'm drinking. All right. Well, go Sixers. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs>